Hey, so we are uh, on our, now our, our fourth week in this study, our third week in the patriarchs, and um, we are looking right now at, uh, give me just one second, um, as far as a, a review, uh, if you'll remember, we're looking at uh, one main region uh, that we're concerned with that uh, Virtually covers the entire um, the entire Old Testament, the Fertile Crescent, which is made up of Mesopotamia, which is over here just north of the north and to the the west of the Persian Gulf, Mesopotamian region, and then we have uh, the the area of Palestine, or also called Canaan, also called the Promised Land, Israel has a bunch of names, but over here in where it's labeled Canaan and Lebanon, and then all the way down. Uh, to Egypt and around the Nile. Those are going to be the main areas of concern. And if you remember, we had said already that uh, Abram, was, who was likely born in, in somewhere around 2166, leaves the area of Mesopotamia down right toward the Persian Gulf uh, in a land called Ur. He's, he's called from there, and he goes up uh, to pretty much on the northern part of that green, uh, the green area on the map here. And uh, lives there in Haran with his father until his father dies. And then he's, ca- he's called by God out of Ur to go there. Then he, after his father dies, he goes all the way in, takes his family and all of his possessions, and comes down into the land of Canaan and Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon. And um, he, uh, li- he dwells there for uh, a little bit and settles in the Levant. Um, in the, uh, I'm all off today. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Um, and then the Negev, and then moves into Egypt for a brief little stint, which is where we, what we talked about last week, comes out of Egypt, uh, and he and Lot uh, get crossways with one another. Perhaps not he and Lot, but at least their men uh, figure they can't live t- together. And so he decides, Lot decides he's going to leave, and so he leaves and goes down um, South of the Dead Sea, somewhere in somewhere in the uh, southern tip of the de- off the t- southern tip of the Dead Sea, and last week what we looked at was uh, Abram, who is uh, who is blessed by God. God tells him, "Look, every everybody that blesses you, I'm going to bless. Everybody that curses you, I'm going to curse." And God sort of singles out Abram as a, the bearer of his covenant blessing really to the rest of the world. Because he tells Abram, through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And the entire book of Genesis is really tracing that blessing all the way through to the end. And in fact, then you get to the rest of the Old Testament and it's all about tracing that particular seed. Which is why we see in Matthew, he opens his gospel with a genealogy because he's identifying the seed that we left off with in the Old Testament trying to find here he is in Jesus Christ. And so um, there's the promise that, he, that God makes to Abram, and, he's, and we're going to see it play out through Genesis. Now, the, the plan for, for us as we go through this study, we'll, we're spending a lot of time on, on Abraham because he's really important. But the way I kind of have it at least planned out in my, my head is uh, Abraham to spend a good bit of time there and to spend uh, quite a bit of time on Moses and then going in to spend a lot of time on Samuel, Saul, and David, because it's a, a really important transition. We'll pick up some speed. It won't go, we won't go you know, breakneck speed, but we'll pick up some speed after Abram 
uh, as we go through um, the Pentateuch until we get to Moses and the journey out of, out of Egypt and things like that. We'll spend a little more time there. Um, but we will spend a little bit of time on Abraham because it, uh, there's so many things in the Abraham story that are key really to the rest of the Old Testament and, and the promises that God is making to Abraham and the way he's reinforcing that promise is really super important. And so God makes this promise to him. What is the promise? What is it? I'm going to make you a father of nations. Okay, I'm going to make you, your, I'm going to multiply your people. And he tells him this several times. We're going to see another one uh, today. So he tells him this. The problem is, of course, that Abram is without a child. And so God has promised to make him a great nation. But right now he remains childless. And so we're going to get to that conversation today, uh, at least the second half of, of tonight. And, um, and so here is uh, Abram. Lot gets captured when he leaves Abram's side. He gets captured and taken up north to Damascus. And Abram rallies up, you know, a couple of guys in his backyard, goes to Damascus to get Lot back. And lickety split has Lot back and has all the kings defeated. And that's no small feat. But again, we see the promise of God uh, coming to fruition again that uh, Abram will be blessed. Okay, now we move into to what we're talking about today because there's this passage that is, is actually really important for the rest of the Bible, even though it's not talked about that much. And it is this strange little section about Melchizedek. And so we get this little passage about Melchizedek um, coming up at, at the, the, back, the latter half of chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 14. Um, we're going to spend our time tonight in 14 and 15. And so uh, if you have them, just go ahead and open there. 14, 17 is where the Melchizedek section opens. Now, this, you have this name, Melchizedek, and it's really important. The name is really important. It, 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 it literally means king of righteousness, um, Melech is the word for king. Sadik is the, the word for righteousness. So he is literally the king of righteousness. But he is also from Salem. And Salem means peace. You might hear shalom. We call it Salem in English, but it's shalom. And it, it means peace. And so uh, he is not only the king of righteousness, he is also the king of peace. So while that's really neat, and we think, yeah, that's, that's amazing, it further complicates things a little bit, because we have to ask the question, who is this guy? <laughs> who is, he kind of shows up out of nowhere. We know Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and it seems as though Abram is really the only one faithful in the land at the time, at least. But then he goes through his life, he's on his journey, he comes up out of Egypt and parts ways with Lot, and then here we've got this guy that he meets out of nowhere who, it appears, has some sort of connection to God. So here is Melchizedek, his name means the king of righteousness, but he's the king of Salem, which literally means king of peace, essentially. Okay, so they have this meeting, and uh, Abram has just captured, got Lot back. He's taken some, I guess you'd say he's captured all the, the stuff back that the kings had taken. And um, he and the king of Sodom come to meet um, in uh, 
the Valley of the Kings, the King's Valley, right here at the, in, uh, in verse 17. So I'll start reading. It says, After his return from the defeat of Kedarliomer uh, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the Valley of Shaveh, that is King's Valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abraham rich, or Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Okay, so here's this little brief interaction between um, Melchizedek, Abram, and the king of Sodom. And so after the thing is over, they, they all kind of come out to meet in King's Valley, which is situated at the, the point of junction between the Kidron Valley and the Valley of Hinnom. Okay, now those two names may not mean anything to you, so I have a map. All right. You like maps. Maps are good. Uh, okay, I hope this is big enough. All right. Get your bearings, okay? Temple Mount is right here, top of the screen. You see that? All right, Temple Mount. You've probably seen that big gold dome that sits up there right now that sits about right here, okay? Got your bearings so far? All right, the Temple Mount points out toward the Kidron Valley, which is right here, okay? You have... On this side of the Kidron Valley, this is where the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane is. Okay? So if you picture in your mind when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's on the Mount of Olives, he, you can see the Temple Mount crystal clear from, from there. It over, it's, uh, I mean, the distance is, what would you say, Richard? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's like not far. I mean, it's... Maybe just past Publix, maybe just a little bit. But, it's, but you're, you're up on a, on a hill. The Temple Mount is obviously on a hill. And in the middle is the Kidron Valley, which is a valley. Shocker. Uh, but it, so the Temple Mount is crystal clear from there. Okay, so the Kidron Valley is here. All right. The Valley of Hinnom. Now, you know this. In the New Testament, the Valley of Hinnom is referred to as Gehenna. Or hell. All right. Um, the Valley of Hinnom is uh, a place where they burned trash. So the trash goes out there, and they just they light it on fire. And so Jesus says, you, "You're gonna they're gonna be thrown into hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth." And he's saying the word Gehenna. They're gonna be thrown into the Valley of Hinnom where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace, right? Is right there, is basically what he's saying. Now, the King's Valley is, starts right here on this road to the Dead Sea and goes all the way down into the baptistry and 
all the way down, takes a sharp, sharp turn, and then cuts into the Dead Sea, which is where the door is, essentially. All right? <laughs> Got it? Good picture? Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, you have no idea. If you're a, ma- if you're a cartographer, I-, I could tell you what to make maps of that Bible scholars would love. It just you get with me after this, and we'll talk. <laughs> There's a business for you. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> you have no idea how hard it is to find a good, solid map of King's Valley. But anyway, uh, it's right where those two meet. So they come down and meet. Now, he is the king of Salem, and we take it with good authority. And uh, Bible points stuff, though I had forgotten to, I realized just now that I had forgotten to put down the verse reference. I'll get that next week. Um, but the Salem is referred to as Jerusalem. So here is this king who is the king of Jerusalem, and he is meeting, uh, he is a high priest of the Most High God. Now, this is not helpful either, okay? Because the, the word that's used there is not Yahweh. I wish it was, because if, it was, if he said was the high priest of Yahweh, that would just clear everything up. But they don't use the name high priest of, of Yahweh. It says high priest of the Most High God. And so um, the, the name that he uses, the only thing that helps us out on that to know who he's talking about is that several verses later, Abram refers to it several times, is that he's been blessed by this same God, he, uh, he knows this same God, in the next chapter he, he calls to this same God, and so that gives us the idea of who is being talked about there, but because it doesn't say Yahweh Elohim, there is a lot of people that make a big kind of fuss about that, and I think unjustly, but the, they have... Uh, the views on who Melchizedek is have, you'll see it range everything from a Canaanite god named El, that he's a high priest of a Canaanite god named El. Some people propose that and say he tricked Abraham and Abram didn't really know that he was, he thought he was a high priest. It's crazy. Um, so, and then the other people say that this is an example of an Old Testament Christophany. Let me put that up there so you can have the blanks. That, he, that this is an example of an Old Testament Christophany. What is a Christophany? Anybody know? Blake? A pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Now, why do people think that? Well, because you have somebody here called the King of Righteousness, who is the King of Peace. Have you heard those terms before? Isaiah 9-7 come to mind, right? Call him Wonderful Counselor, Almighty Father, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, so here is, here is this uh, character named uh, King of Righteousness, King of Peace. And so some people have thought he is a Christophany. But the most uh, likely explanation is probably what you all know, is that this was a man who was the king of Salem, which is the current city of Jerusalem, and he was a high priest to Yahweh Elohim. All right. Um, a high priest of Yahweh Elohim. The reason I say that is because we're going to say the word God a billion times and not always referred to. <laughs> so I'm using a proper name, all right? <laughs> but if you want to write God there <laughs> with a capital G, that's fine with me too. <laughs> but, um, but I just wanted to be clear. Um, now, what is Melchizedek doing here? 
And how does the Bible use him later? It sort of gets a little bit confusing as to what the, how the Bible talks about um, this Melchizedek. But essentially what Melchizedek, um, what the biblical authors say about Melchizedek is that he becomes an example of a priesthood outside the line of Aaron. Why is that significant? Somebody tell me. Perfect, because Jesus wasn't from the line of Aaron, okay? Now, believe it or not, this is a significant question, okay? Because who, who, is, who does the priesthood fall under? Levi. Levi, the tribe of Levi, right? So from Levi are the priests. However, here you have an example of a person. We get no backstory. We're not told how his story ends. We're not told who his parents are. All we can assume, all we know, is that he is outside of the tribe of Levi. Levi hasn't been born yet, so he's outside of the tribe of Levi. Okay? So that becomes really significant because here you have a high priest to Yahweh Elohim, to God Most High, and he is not of the line of Levi. Now, we, this is actually used to justify two people in the Bible. You know the two people. Jesus is one. We've already had that called out. You know the other one? David. Did David say David? Da- da- David said David. Uh, that was a hard time remembering that name. Uh, uh, so, and how do we know that David uh, is an example of this... Uh, kind of Melchizedek character. He, he is a, a priest, essentially, uh, of God, but he's not. Well, who is David of the tribe of? Judah, right? He's of the tribe of Judah. How do we know that? Well, because David performs the duties of the Aaronic priesthood in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I should have the verses down there. Where is it at? 2 Samuel 6, 12 to 15. Who will read that for me? So here you have the Ark of God, which belongs in the temple. Well, the temple's not around yet, but that's where it's going to end up. And has the, the presence of God, and it's blessing the house of Obed-Edom because of the Ark. And David presumes to take it, <laughs> right? He presumes to get it on out of there, all right? And so not only that, but then it says David is dancing in front of the Ark. What is he wearing? What's the significance of that? That's a priestly garment. All right, David is dancing in front of the ark in a priestly garment. And does he die? Well, somebody should have told Uzzah that. Because, (laughs) you know, 
remember, Uzzah, am I saying the name right? Am I remembering the name right? Yeah, I thought so. I was calling that from memory. I'm thinking, wait, is that right? Yeah, it is. Uh, when he's, yeah, the ark's going out and the ark starts to fall, and what does he do? He Poor Uzzah tries to catch it. He's going to protect it from hitting the ground. The problem is he's less righteous than the dirt, as R.C. Sproul used to say. He's less righteous than the dirt, and so he died on the spot. All right, but here David is rolling it out of there. And he's offering a sacrifice in front of it, which is a big no-no for a Judahite to, to do this in priestly garments. But it's obvious that David has priestly authority. And there's even psalms that indicate as much that at least David is given that kind of priestly authority as the, king, the true king of Israel. But then... Melchizedek is identified also as a type of Christ. He is a type of Christ in the epistle of Hebrews, um, precisely because Jesus is not of the line of Aaron. So look with me, if you will, just quickly at the book of Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews can get... Super confusing, super quick, but Hebrews chapter 7, we're just going to look at, at a few verses here. The author of Hebrews tells us right out of the gate in chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the, the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And said to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is with our father or mother, or he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of the day of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, some people have taken that and they've misunderstood it, I think, and gone back into Genesis and gone, see, it's a Christophany. This is an appearance of, because look, Melchizedek, he didn't have a mother or a father. He just, he just appeared. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. That's not what the author of Hebrews is telling us, I don't think. He's simply saying that in the text of Genesis, we're not told where this guy comes from. We're not told where he goes. He comes on the scene without mother or father, and he disappears after that. Poof, he's vanished. All right, in the text, there's, not, there's nothing else. It's just him. All right? So he says uh, all of this, and he says in verse 4, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, their brothers, uh, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, the tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one to whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. What is he saying there? Somebody help me out. And the Levites subjected themselves to Abraham 
Did you hear that? Say it again. Yeah. So he's basically saying, look, the Aaronic priesthood is the one that's supposed to receive the tithes from the people, all the other descendants of Abraham. He's supposed to, the tribe of Levi is supposed to receive the tithes. But what do you have in Genesis? You have Melchizedek receiving tithes. Though he's not of Levi. In fact, really, if you want to talk about it, Levi paid tithes to him. Because what he's saying is, Levi is still in his grandfather. Right? Grandfather? Yeah. Grandfather. Levi's still in his great-grandfather. Yeah, great-grandfather. Yeah, yeah, great-grandfather. Sorry. I, I'm, I'm telling you, today, it's something with the brain. It's just not working. Uh, Levi's still in his great-grandfather. So Levi hasn't been born yet. And yet here is Melchizedek receiving tithes. And it's, he's trying to lay out the case that... Though Jesus is not of the tribe of Levi, he is still overqualified to be priest in the same way that Melchizedek was, and as the Bible will lay out, the same way David was, even though they were of the tribe of Judah. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right, now let's go back. Enough with Melchizedek. Uh, Questions on Melchizedek? Questions that I can answer? Um, I think it does with Melchizedek, yeah. Does any of it rule out a Christophany? I mean, I think it does, yeah. I I really do. Uh, The way the Bible talks about Melchizedek versus the way it deals with a Christophany, it's just different. And I suppose somebody could make that argument and I'd be willing to listen to it. And I, I would say that if somebody makes that argument, I'm not saying, burn him at the stake, you know, but um, I, I just, I don't think it has much ground to stand on with the scripture. But. Right, 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 right. Uh, okay, so now we get to the covenant with Abraham in chapter 15. Um, and so here we have this opening uh, in chapter 15. Let me get to the slide here. Uh, So at the opening of chapter 15, it would appear that Abraham and Abram and Sarai have adopted a son named Eleazar of Damascus. Okay, so it appears in the text and from some other kind of confirmation that we have that this is precisely what has happened: that Abram and Sarah are without a kid. And for whatever reason, well, we know the reason, but they have adopted this servant inside their household. Look at at chapter 15. He says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is is Eleazar of Damascus. Um, so here he's, he's pointing to, look, I don't have a child. And the, the, the one that is my heir is Eleazar of Damascus. Now, why do we think that he is actually adopted, that Sarah and Abram have actually adopted Eleazar? Because we know that this was all a common practice. 
How do we know that it was a common practice? Well, in the 1920s, we found some tablets called the Newsy Tablets. And um, N-U-Z-I, not like the musical. Uh, these are the, 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 the Newsy Tablets. And wouldn't you know that on the tablets, as they're translated, they lay out, uh, if everybody's got that in the blank, I'll show you what they look like. Down here at the very bottom is a penny. Yeah, they're about the, and actually they're about the size of a Hot Pocket, all right? Uh, that's about the size of a Hot Pocket. It's kind of what they look like, they're written all around. Um, but there's tons of these, and on one of them, they actually lay out uh, what a barren couple would and could do, what was permitted by law for a barren couple to do in order to have a child and an heir. What do you think, what privileges do you think that it grants them? Well, one, it grants them the privilege of adoption of a slave in their household. So they could adopt a slave in their household to be their heir. The other thing that they could do is actually practice surrogacy, where a slave could actually have a child as the heir of the, the master of the household. What do we see in Genesis chapter 15 and 16? But Abram going right through those procedures, all right? Both, it seems like, I think, adopting Eliezer of Damascus into his family and then, then trying to exercise the, the other option in chapter 16, which would be having an heir through surrogacy. Now, there's another part of this that, that sort of makes this kind of click into place, I think. The phrase that he uses there in, chapter, in verse 2, where he says, the heir of my house. Now, normally, that's translated the one in charge of my house. So here is, uh, the idea is that the, the one that you put in charge of your house, basically, if you think about Eliezer of Damascus, probably being like the number one in command of the servants in his household. He's probably the head honcho in terms of the servants. And what Abram does, what Abram and Sarah do, is essentially adopt him into their family and say, when I die, you get everything. You're going to just continue running this. It's all yours. I mean, whether that, there's a formal adoption process or just that you're the boss of everything and when I die, you're going to take over my possessions, six, one, half a dozen, the other, it's the same thing, right? That is a, a functional son to Abram. So he is uh, essentially, whether, you know, whether he's explicitly adopted him or not, he, he's essentially adopted into the family. Does that make sense? Yeah, questions on that? Um, okay. Uh, so, um, so essentially, the, the other two uh, blanks here, the Newsy tablets point out that a childless man could adopt someone to be the guardian uh, and heir of the estate as compensation for performing those duties, basically the same duties of a son. Um, now, then things start to get really shaken up because Abram says, look, what's going to happen? Because the heir of my, my house is a, a servant, a slave, essentially. So what are you going to do? And so now God starts rolling out the promises, all right? And uh, so in, starting in verse 3, he starts rolling out the promises. Let's look at it. He says, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household uh, will, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. 
your very own son, uh, literally a product of your loins, uh, shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So here Abram considers the promise uh, of God trustworthy and God considered him righteous on the basis of his faith. Now, not only that, here's the beauty for us, is that we're, we're told explicitly that Abraham then is the father of all who believe. That every person is considered by New Testament standards to be a seed of Abraham by faith. In the same way that Abraham is counted righteous in accordance with his faith, so every person is considered the seed of Abraham if they believe. What are the people considered that are literally the seed of Abraham that don't believe? They're considered not the seed of Abraham. It's very clear in Scripture. Somebody read uh, Romans 4.11. And Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So Paul is making the argument, especially in the Romans passage, that Abram, or Abraham received the sign of circumcision because he already believed. He was circumcised of heart, as Paul will say later, already. And he believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. So the, so the people that believe are incorporated into that same faith. Questions, comments on that? Sufficiently clear? All right. So then the Lord offers to Abram a sign of his obligation to the covenant that he's offering to Abraham. And this is going to be, this is where I think it really gets interesting. He says, um, in verse 7, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord, uh, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right. Here's a weird scene that we, we see here because every promise, every good promise begins with some split down the middle animals, right? So Abram, he, he tells him to, to bring him three, uh, three animals, or really five animals, three, three, three-year-old heifers, a uh, heifer, a goat, sorry, three-year-old heifer, a goat, and a, a ram, in addition to a turtle dove and a pigeon, and he cuts them in half and he lays them down uh, opposite one another. Because every good promise begins this way, right? You got you got if you really if you're really serious, this is what you'll do. Um, the birds probably are sacrificed, though we're not really told. We just told don't cut them in half, but he, he's probably gonna sacrifice them. And so he, he he does what the Lord tells him to do. And the Lord gives him the first prophecy. And the, the music starts getting really dark right here. You start hearing the organ in really deep, dark tones, right? Because it says right there at the beginning, uh, the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Adrian, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Now we get this prophecy that, he's going, that they're going to live in a land. His offspring are going to be sojourners in a land that's not their own. Where is that? It's going to be the land of Egypt, and they're going to live there for 400 years. It turns out to be 430, but we're ballparking it, okay? That's what he's, he's given him, about 400 years. But, but God then tells him he's going to punish the hostile nation, and the children of Israel will benefit by gaining possessions. So they're going to come out with possessions. What are the possessions for? What are the possessions, first of all? Yeah. Uh, Big supply of gold, first of all, and then a lot of other things. But basically, the Egyptians pay them to go away. They're like, what do you want? We'll give you anything. And they're like, give us your gold. And they're like, okay. And they give them all their gold. Why do they need gold? They're going to build a tabernacle. What do they actually build with it? Yeah, there is that. Okay. <laughs> But they're going to build a tabernacle out of it. What's the significance of the tabernacle? Yeah. But why is God having them build a tabernacle? He can dwell anywhere he wants. Why is he having them build a tabernacle? Yeah. So that he can be with his people. Okay? Here, think about that for just a second. Right now he's singled out Abram. He's talking to Abram. He's not dwelling with his people. He's telling Abram, I'm singling you out because the best thing for humanity is that I would dwell with you. And so, in order to accomplish that plan, I'm going to give you kids. Though you're going to be 100 when you have kids. He didn't tell him that, but you're going to be 100 when you have kids. Those people are going to drag, be dragged down to, to Egypt. They're going to live there for 400 years. Why are they going to live there for 400 years? Why? Mm -mm. Yes, the Amorites have not sinned enough yet. 
So in, in spite of the fact that he's promised the land to them, he also, there's also people dwelling there right now that don't have a right to that land, that he could kick off the land if he wanted to. But he doesn't. I'm going to wait 400 years until they mount up enough sins and the blood on the ground is crying out. And then I'm going to send you in there to drive them out. Just think about that for just a second. In fact, it's 430 years. And then I think on top of that, they're marching through the desert for 40 years. So 470 years before they finally actually march into the the promised land. I could be rough on my math. I'm not a math magician. But imagine the patience that he has in, in dealing with a, a group of people who are sacrificing their children to gods. They haven't sinned enough. The sins of the Amorites are not full. But my, his plans are so in-depth that he's not only going to bring them out and he's not going to send them down there, he's going to send them down there to save their life that we'll find out at the end of Genesis. But he's going to send them down there to save their life. And while they're down there, he's going to keep them down there and then he's going to bring plagues on them so that the Egyptians give them all their possessions so when they come out, they can build a tabernacle so that he can dwell with his people. Imagine the plans of God. It's incredible. It's clear that God is forestalling the inheritance of the land in order for the iniquity of the Amorites to become complete. Now, we get this weird scene of the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. And it calls to mind, this smoking fire pot and the flaming torch call to mind the presence of God in the Exodus as he is leading his people out through the wilderness. We see that in Exodus 13.21. I'll read that real quick. Exodus 13.21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Now remember who's reading this. It's at the very least the people that are just now getting ready to walk into the promised land that Moses has written down. So most of this stuff that Moses is writing for them, they're reading before they go into the promised land as a last reminder. So they're cracking this puppy open. They know the pillar of smoke and they know the fire. Why, why does he draw attention to Abram's vision in this dream of seeing the, pill, the smoke and the fire? What does he want them to know? Who's walking between these animals? God's walking between these animals. That's who they know. When they hear pillar of smoke, pillar of fire, that's God. There's no question as to who this is walking through the fire. Or walking through the, between the animals. All right. So now, what is with these animals? When you, um, the word, the word, the phrase make a covenant is literally cut a covenant. So when God cuts a covenant, what is happening is there, he's cutting the animals, separating them apart. And the one that walks between the animals is basically saying in the covenant if I don't fulfill my end of the obligation, let this be done to me. Understood? How do we know that? Well, Jeremiah 34, 18 and 19, we see the same kind of thing. 
this scene, Zedekiah, they're being uh, under siege by, the king, by Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's coming in to take Jerusalem. And uh, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, goes up to the king and he says, here is the transgression that you have. You have kept all these slaves and that are your own people. You have enslaved the Jewish people by Jews. You have, you have kept them as slaves. And every seven years, you're supposed to release them and you did not do it. And so I'm holding you to account. And so he leaves. And what does the king do? He's like, well, you, you know, Jeremiah says, you're, you're going to be under siege by the Babylonians. They're going to take you. They're going to haul you off to slavery. So what does the king do? He lets all the slaves go. <laughs> He's like, quick, maybe we'll find favor with God. So he lets all the slaves go. And so he tells everybody, you better let your slaves go. And so they let all their slaves go. And then they're like, wow, washing dishes is really hard. Um, so they go capture their slaves back and they bring them back in. And so Jeremiah's like, no, that's not going to work. Now, what does he say in 34, 18 and 19? He says, and this is God. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. What is he going to do to them? I'm going to kill you right down the middle. That's what he's saying to them. I'm going to cut you right down the middle. But now we go back to the scene with Abraham. What is God doing? He's invoking a curse on himself. If he doesn't abide by his own covenant. See, the irony here is in Jeremiah, the people are made to walk between the, the, the goats, the animals. And they're held to account for not abiding by the covenant, really breaking the law. It's always the inferior that walks between the, the animals. But here the problem is God is walking between the animals. What's he doing between the animals? He shouldn't be between the animals. The further irony is that in order to fulfill the promise, he's going to have to die. He's going to have to send his son to die to fulfill the promise. Imagine that. Questions, comments? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are you did what a truly loving father does for his children. Um, something that would be hard for any of us earthly fathers to even wrap our minds around. You did for us. You sacrificed your own son for our benefit. And you took upon yourself the curse. How grateful we are for Jesus. We'd be dead without him. 
Lord, we pray for boldness. We know these things are true. We trust that they're true. We pray for boldness to give them to others. We know that there are many in this city that are yours. May we be faithful with what you've given to us. In whatever opportunities we have to give hope to those around us and let them know that there's, life is only found in you through Jesus Christ. Amen.